Well, good morning, guys, and welcome to Alpine Church. It's great to have you worshiping with us today. And as, as Michael said, I'm sure in the announcements earlier, if it happens to be your first time here, thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you feel very welcome today. We hope that uh, we're able to help you pursue God today. That's really our mission. My name's John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor here at the Logan campus. And if we've never had the opportunity to meet, I would love it if you would just come up and say hi after the service so I can put a face with the name. That'd be great. And I, I'm just going to go ahead and stop the rumor mill right now. I did not start chewing tobacco. Um, I had some dental work done this week, so uh, that's why this side is significantly bigger than the other side. But uh, God spoke through a burning bush and through a donkey, so I think he can speak through a guy with a swollen jaw. I think we'll make it work today. So uh, we're going to be jumping back into the Gospel of Mark. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we, we kicked off kind of a deep dive into the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 again today. And we're going to pick up with the verses that we ended with last week. There's going to be just a little bit of an overlap, but thematically these fit pretty well. So if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your Bible app, we're going to kick off today in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And I'm going to go ahead and read the entire passage that we're going to cover today, and then after that we'll dive in. So Mark 1, 14 through 20. It says, Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, Follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. So Jesus has just finished his preparation time in the wilderness. He has defeated all of Satan's temptations there. We looked at that last week. And now he's kicking off his ministry here on earth. And we read in verse 14 that he went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. Jesus was a preacher. He also did amazing miracles. He healed people. He did a lot of things. But at the heart of his ministry, Jesus taught. And he went into Galilee to do this. Jesus actually spent the majority of his ministry time in Galilee. Now, Galilee was a region that was about 60 miles by 30 miles. It was north of Judea, north of Jerusalem. And the ancient Jewish historian Josephus estimated about 3 million people lived in Galilee at the time of Christ. And as he starts his ministry, Jesus is about to turn things on their head. He's about to turn things upside down. We're going to see that when Jesus preached that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom, at least upside-down compared to what they had experienced and compared to what they were expecting. So let's dig in to see what Jesus had to say in this first message that Mark records. We're going to take a look at the king's speech. Jesus begins his ministry with a call to repent and believe in the gospel. The good news is that we are invited to join up with a loving but powerful king. 
And Laurel, it's not advancing, so if you'll just take me through. So the king's speech, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. I love that Mark identifies the gospel as God's good news. This isn't anything that man came up with. In fact, the Bible tells us that before the foundations of the world were set, God already had his plan of redemption in place. This is God's good news. The good news that even though you and I have rebelled against God, we can have our relationship restored with him is his good news to us. It's God's good news. And then Jesus told the crowd, the time promised by God has come at last. And I'll bet you there were men in the audience that said, it doesn't feel like it. We're still under Roman oppression. We, we, we still aren't leading politically or militarily. They didn't feel like the time God had promised had come at last. Because they, they missed it. They didn't understand that God's redemption was more than just political or military victory, that God's redemption was redemption over sin and over death. There are two Greek words used in the New Testament for the word time. One is chronos, which just simply means chronological time. The other is kairos. I thought that was me for a second. (laughs) The other is kairos. And kairos means the decisive time. And that's the word Jesus used here. He used kairos. This is the decisive time. This is the time when God the Son has come to earth. When God the Son has brought down God's kingdom and has walked among us. Then Jesus told them the kingdom is near. And again, this had to fill their mind with thoughts about the nation of Israel ruling and having authority. They thought that this would be a time of great blessing for them. After all, they were God's chosen people. And it was a time of great blessing. They were right about that, just not in the way that they were thinking. The kingdom of God was near because the king was near. The king of all kings and lord of all lords was in their midst, was walking among them. And every time he taught, every time he healed, every time he took a step, he was spreading the seeds for God's kingdom to be here on earth. Mark talks more about this in chapter 4 of his gospel. Mark 4, 26 and 27, Jesus also said, The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. So as Jesus often did in Mark chapter 4, he's, he's teaching in parables. He compares the kingdom of God to a farmer who scatters seeds. And the reality is the farmer doesn't do anything to make it grow. He can scatter the seeds. He can even water and fertilize if he wants, but he can't make the seed grow. And that's still how God is building his kingdom on earth. He invites you and I to scatter seeds, but only God can make it grow. Only God can do the heavy lifting. Only God can reveal spiritual truth to someone. Only God can soften someone's heart. 
And just like the seed is growing, whether the farmer is awake or asleep, so God's kingdom is growing, whether you and I choose to be on mission or not. But God has invited us to be a part of it. God has invited us to experience the joy and the excitement that comes by helping other people pursue God, by scattering seeds. And I hope that you and I take that invitation seriously. And it was more than just the kingdom of God was near, it was actually already among them. Jesus spells this out more clearly in Luke chapter 17, verse 21. He says, you won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. And I want you to think about some of the the elements of the kingdom of God that we see when Jesus was on this earth. We see broken bodies being healed. We see people freed from demonic possession. We see people rise from the dead. And we see this king who rules with wisdom and with justice and with compassion. It's just a small taste of what God's kingdom is going to be like when Jesus comes again. When Jesus comes back and when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord And I have to say, guys, I'm so looking forward to that kingdom because I've had it up to here with the world's kingdom. I've had it up to here with a kingdom where the most vulnerable and helpless are murdered every day. To a kingdom where young boys and girls are sold into sex trafficking. To a kingdom where families are ripped apart by adultery and addiction and domestic violence. I see all the brokenness around us and I... I see the own brokenness in me. And I think, come Lord Jesus, come. I can't wait to see when your kingdom is firmly established on the earth. And you know, as his followers, we're supposed to be planting the seeds for that now. People should look at us and look at our lives and just get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Because the kingdom of God was near, Jesus told them to repent of their sins And believe. Now, repent is one of those churchy words that we don't use much outside of Sundays. There were were two kind of word pictures in the Bible of repent. In the Old Testament, the word most literally means turn and go the other way. So I'm going in one direction, I repent, and I turn and I go the other way. In the New Testament, the word that's used for repent most often meant a changing of the mind. And in that culture, your mind was more than just how you you know, logically compute things. The mind was, was the very center of your being. It was your very core. So to repent meant that at my very core, I had to change. I used to see things one way. Now I see things another way. I used to have my perspective. Now I have God's perspective. And what happens is when your perspective changes, you will make that turn and go the other way because you now see things the way God sees them. Jesus also told them to believe, and the Greek word that's used there is pistuo. So it's more than just to have knowledge, it speaks of a relationship of trust and dependence. You and I would call that faith. So you you put these two together and Jesus is telling his original audience, you have to have a changing of the mind. You have to change the way you think. You're thinking that you're right with God because you're children of Abraham, but you're not. You need to turn from that and you need to believe in me. You need to believe that I am who I say I am. You need to trust in me. You need to depend on me. 
And Jesus' call to us today is the same. Repent and believe. That's his call for salvation. If, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, the first thing you have to do is you, you have to change your mind. If you think that you're going to have a place in the kingdom of God because you do more good than bad, or because of the church that you go to, or because of your parents' faith, or because you're better than your neighbor, you have to change the way you're thinking. You have to recognize that you're broken, that you need a rescuer, you need a savior. And then you trust, you believe that the king of all kings left the comforts of heaven and went to the cross for you. You talk about an upside down kingdom. <laughs> what other kingdom does the king come down and give his life for the peasants? That's this kingdom that God calls us to. And if you have any questions about that, if you want to know more about that, we would love to talk with you after the service. That's going to take us into our second point for today, and that's about the king's people. So we looked at the king's speech, now we're going to focus on the king's people. Jesus enlists ordinary people to follow him. These guys aren't who you would expect to be used as the core team. If you were getting ready to establish your kingdom here on earth, who would you pick to roll out the carpet? Like if I said, okay guys, line up everybody around the room and I'm going to have two of you be captains and you go pick your team to go establish the kingdom, who would you pick? So I give you bad flashbacks to like gym class in grade school, right? When you had to line up and the two captains picked. I didn't mind being picked. I knew if we were playing soccer, I'd be picked almost at the last and I didn't care because I didn't like soccer. I knew if we were playing football, I'd be picked towards the front and most other sports, I'd be in the middle. What I hated was being the captain. I hated being the one who had to pick. Because contrary to what my sisters would tell you, I tried to be a nice guy in grade school. So it was like the little demon and the angel, right? The little angel was saying, oh, pick the kids who don't usually get picked first. But I was also very competitive. So the little devil was like, no, 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 man. You've got to pick the kids that are going to help us to win. <laughs> Maybe you guys can relate to that a little bit. But here's how Jesus picked his core team. We're in verses 16 and 17 now in Mark chapter 1. It says, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Now when we kicked off this series, we talked about how Mark's is the shortest gospel. And Mark gets straight to the point on a lot of things. And so Mark leaves out some of the story sometimes. And if we only read the Gospel of Mark, we might think that this was the very first time Jesus had encountered Andrew and Simon, but it's not. If we read Luke's Gospel, we know that they had already had at least two encounters with Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, we read that Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. We also read in Luke chapter 5 that, that Jesus is teaching and he was so popular the crowds are pressing him. Like he literally doesn't have room to speak. And so he asked Peter if he can get in his boat and if Peter will put out into the water a little bit so that he can teach. So Jesus teaches from the boat and then after he's done teaching, he tells Peter, take your boat out into deeper water and let out your nets. And we know from the Bible that Peter had already been fishing all night and he hadn't caught anything. Peter says, we fished all night and we didn't catch anything, but... Since you said so, I'll do it. So in just the brief interactions that, that Simon has had with Jesus, he already recognizes there's something special about him. 
I think if anybody else in the world would have told Peter to go out and lower his nets, he would have been like, you can go pound sand. I'm not, I'm not going out again. I worked all night, didn't catch anything. But he obeys, and what happens? They catch so many fish, the nets start to break. And they get the fish into the boat, and the boats are so heavy, the boats start to sink, and they have to get help just to bring them in. And when that happens, Simon kneels before Jesus. He says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus tells him, don't be afraid, but come and follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. So Simon and Andrew had seen Jesus at least two times before that call. They'd had some interaction. And then Jesus told Andrew and Simon that he would show them how to fish for people. In some of your translations, it might say, I will make you fishers of men or fishers of people. He didn't call Andrew and Simon because they already knew how to fish for people. They didn't bring anything to the table when it came to what Jesus wanted to do in them. He said, I will show you or I will make you. In other words, he was going to equip them. He was going to model for them how this worked. They weren't going to be fishing for people the next day. It was going to take a little bit of time, and he was going to show them exactly what he was talking about. As we continue on in Mark 1.19, it says, A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. Now again, from Luke's gospel, we know that James and John were actually partners with Andrew and Simon, and we know that they had helped bring in this massive catch, so that's why they're having to repair their nets. There were so many fish. And then as they're bringing them in, Jesus calls them when it's done. And here we have the beginning of the core team that Jesus is going to use to build the kingdom. Four fishermen. Not well-educated. Not the religious leaders of the day. Not the most powerful not the most charismatic. In God's upside-down kingdom, he starts building with four fishermen. Paul talks about this pattern of choosing ordinary people in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Paul writes, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Now, Paul didn't say that none of the Corinthian Christians were wise, powerful, or wealthy. He said that few were. Paul himself likely was pretty affluent before he encountered Jesus. He was a Pharisee, so he probably had some means. But Paul understood that Jesus called fishermen first. And throughout the pages of Scripture, we see that God has an inclination to choose the outcast and the underdog. I think one of the reasons he does that is it brings him more glory when they do amazing things. And he also does that because he wants to put to shame the wisdom of the world. And he wants to show the powerful of the world just how minuscule their power really is. That it's really all about his power. It's really about his wisdom. And I think this is also a reminder to the Corinthians who may have been tempted to think that they were something special. 
because of all the amazing things God was doing in them. He wanted them to know he wasn't doing that because they were so great. It's because God is so great. It makes me think of that song by Casting Crowns, um, Nobody But Jesus. You might know it. There's a lyric in there that says, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. That's me. <laughs> That's me. I'm just a nobody. And I, I, I recognize God has given me some giftings. I feel like God has given me the ability to teach. I think God has given me discernment. But I didn't bring those tools to the table. God gave me that. And God could have given anyone that. And honestly, when I think that God still chooses to use broken guys like me to spread his kingdom, it's tough to get my mind around. I think this passage also serves as a warning to us. See, Paul's original audience was a small minority. When Paul wrote this, the the Christian movement was still in its infancy. It was a very small minority, and, and by and large, both the Jewish culture and the Roman culture thought the Christians were foolish. They despised them. And I think as biblical Christianity represents a smaller and smaller percentage in our culture, you and I, we're going to experience some of that. In fact, I would say even right now, if you don't have people in your life that think you're foolish, then you must hold your Christian beliefs pretty close to the best. Because I have people who think I'm foolish. I have people who think I'm foolish because I don't believe man evolved from monkeys. I have people who think I'm foolish because I think we should protect the unborn. I have people who think I'm foolish because I believe the Bible teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman. I have people who call me foolish because I believe there is only one name under heaven by which you can be saved, the name of Jesus. I'm despised for that. And in this upside-down kingdom, do you know what God calls me to do for those people? Pray for them, love them, treat them with kindness and compassion. Speak the truth, yes, but do it with gentleness and respect. I want to wrap up this point of the sermon by talking to anyone who might be thinking, why would God want to use me? Do you know my past? I don't bring anything to the table. That's the wrong way to look at it. It's not what you bring to the table, it's what he brings to the table. And the first thing he brings is a love for you that you can't even fully comprehend. The second thing is he still shows us how to fish for people. God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And so when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit actually takes residence in you and then the Holy Spirit begins to give you spiritual gifts. You then also start to develop the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And when you're being led by the Spirit, regardless of what you brought to the table, God can use you to do amazing things. So when we hear His call to come and follow How do we respond? Well, we need to leave our nets. Following Jesus means surrendering to his rule in our lives. And this involves leaving your nets and getting on board with his mission. That's how Andrew and Simon responded. In verse 118, it says, And they left their nets at once and followed him. And just the few interactions they had had with Jesus, they recognized he was worth following 
There wasn't any hesitation for them to leave when he called them. They left their nets at once. They left their career. Now, I'm not saying that God calls everyone to leave their career when he asks you to follow him. He doesn't. But what if he did? What if you heard God calling you to leave your career? Would you follow? Would you leave your nets? Keep in mind, Andrew and Simon just had the biggest catch in their lives. Business had never been better. And God said, leave it and follow me. I remember what that was like. You know, before I was in ministry, I I was self-employed for about 16 years. And the first 14 years were a grind. Week after week, month after month, just working hard and barely making ends meet. God was always faithful. We never went hungry. We always paid the bills. But it, it was a grind. And I remember after about 14 years, it finally started to click. And the money started getting good and it started getting easy. And that's when God said, leave your net. And I remember, I'll be honest with you guys, that first year in ministry, I looked back a lot (laughs) and thought, did I make the right decision? And God's been so faithful that I wouldn't trade it for the world. And it may not be an occupation God's calling you to leave behind. Maybe it's a hobby. I talked to a brother in Christ here last Sunday. He and I were having a conversation and he said, you know, I used to be one of those, the church is my mountains kind of guy. But he said, God called me to recognize and see that I need to be around the Lord's people on Sunday. I need to be with other believers. I need to be able to encourage them, and I need to be encouraged. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's sinful to miss a Sunday every now and then and go to the mountains. I'm not saying that you can't take vacation with your family. I'm not being legalistic about it. But this guy knew that God was calling him to get away from that habit of spending every Sunday up in the mountains. And I would encourage you guys this week in your prayer time to ask God, is he calling you to leave anything behind? And I know that's hard, and I know that might make you tense up a little bit, but here's what's so amazing in God's upside-down kingdom. True freedom comes when we submit to Jesus' authority in our lives. You will never experience more peace, more freedom, more excitement about the life you're living than when you're following what Jesus has called you to do. As we continue on in this passage, we see that James and John had the same response that Andrew and Simon had. We're in Mark chapter 1, verse 20 now. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Again, they left at once. There was no hesitation. In fact, they leave their dad sitting in the boat with all those fish. And the Bible doesn't really tell us how Zebedee responded. Was he supportive? Did he encourage them? Or did he mock them for leaving the family business? Did he try to guilt trip them for walking out on him? See, it's tough enough to follow Jesus when your family supports you, but some of you in here, you know what it's like when following Jesus alienates you from your family, when they don't support it. And I would just say, if that describes you, hang in there. It's worth it. See, Jesus told us that we would experience loss for following him, at least temporary loss. He talks about it in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He says, Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. I think over the centuries we tried to take the sting out of that verse and what it really means. 
So to give you some context, just before this, Jesus had told his disciples, look, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise on the third day. And Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him for it. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then it leads into this verse. See, we have to know that Jesus is saying, you've got to give up your own way and take up your cross. And in that time and in that culture, the cross meant only one thing, death. It wasn't a religious symbol they wore around their neck. It wasn't a tradition. It was an unrelenting instrument of death. Jesus was saying, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. And we hear that and we're like, oh, man. But in this upside-down kingdom, that's how we have life. <laughs> that when we truly die to ourselves, that's how we have this rich and abundant and full life that Jesus said he came to give us. That when you die to self and you're in line with Jesus and his calling on your life, you'll never be more excited. You'll never be more joy-filled. You'll never be more purposeful than when we do that. Mark 10, 42 through 45, Jesus talks more about what it's like for you and I to be in this kingdom that he's bringing. He says, you know that those recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise dominion over them. But it is not so among you. Rather, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus didn't just command us to take up our cross. He modeled it first. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He left the comforts of heaven, and he came down and he lived the perfect life that none of us could live, and he carried our sins to the cross, and he nailed them there for all of us who had put our faith in him. And he paid the debt that we should have paid. And when he rose again, he showed himself to be the undisputed king of this new kingdom. For those of us who have already put our faith in him, if you and I want to be great in God's kingdom, we've got to learn how to be the servant of all. We've got to learn how to put other people ahead of ourselves. It's my prayer for you and for me that we do that this week. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you didn't come to be served. You deserve it. You deserve for us to serve you. You deserve all the accolades and the honors and the praises. But instead, you came to purchase us. You came to pay the debt that we should have paid. And because of that, we can have eternity with you. We can be a part of God's kingdom. This kingdom where one day there's going to be no more tears, there's going to be no more death. Lord God, I, I'm so looking forward to your kingdom. And sometimes I wonder, why are you waiting so long? But I'm reminded that you're patient because you desire that none should perish. And so God, if there's anyone here today who has never put their faith in you, Jesus, if there's anyone here who's never had that changing of the mind, I just pray that, that you would do the hard work right now, that you would soften their heart, that you would open their eyes, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord God, we love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.